0: Good afternoon, it's uh, just gone one o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. I'm Silly Sherylumbus, your host for the Daily Maverick show on cliffcentral.com. I'm joined in studio by the evergreen Brooks Spectre. Welcome Brooks, good to see you. It's been a while since we've had you. Our favorite Australian uh, reporter at the Daily Maverick, Greg Nicholson. Thanks for having me. And Andrea Teagle, the person responsible for Fact of the Day and a whole bunch of other things on First Thing. Our daily newsletter that goes out to the Daily Maverick subscriber base as well as the Cliff Central... Um, subscribers as well. So we're going to kick off with our fact of the day. And I think, uh, Andrea, since you're the expert, this is, uh, this is your domain. We're going to hand over to you for your fun fact of the day.
1: Okay, great. Um, well, the fact of today is um, about the Cape Ground Squirrel. Um, they have very impressive genitalia, which um, are actually 40% the length of their bodies. Um, they're so big, in fact, that they can and frequently do um, perform oral masturbation. Um, and, on themselves. Uh, on themselves. Yeah. Oh, and, I believe uh, the term is <laughs> Well, yeah. I, I I kind of wondered if everyone would know what that means. So, um, but there was a researcher in Namibia who um, who spent quite a disturbing amount of time watching these squirrels masturbate. Um, and they used. There's actually a very funny description of this. So I actually thought I would just read it.
2: <laughs> uh, who funded this research?
1: <laughs> I actually didn't. I didn't read the study, but um, it's in a very reputable um, um scientific blog so i i think it's
2: (laughs) somebody paid for this
1: (laughs) but uh, anyway so she she describes it like this um an oral masturbation was recorded when a male sat with head lowered and an erect penis in his mouth being stimulated with both mouth and forepaws while the lower torso moved forward and backwards in thrusting motions uh finally culminated in an apparent ejaculation after which the male appeared to consume the ejaculate oh yeah, and she went on to. That was a surprise <laughs> ending. I know. Well, she went on to. Welcome to the over
2: 18 show.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, but this is important because the theory behind it is that they, they don't just do this for pleasure, but, um, it's a type of, of self cleansing, um, to reduce the chance that they get, um, sexually transmitted infections because apparently with squirrels, this actually is effective, obviously. But with how, people, not so much.
3: How, how does that work by, through that process? How do you avoid
1: STIs? Um, you know they that don't should, really give a good. whole lot of detail here, but apparently the mouth cleans the outside, and then um, you know they get rid of all the, the stuff inside, course, and it's apparently helpful. So, it it so probably also reduces the yeah.
0: uh, incentive to go and you know um, <laughs> fiddle yeah. in somewhere that's not not as clean anymore. you luck like after that, Henry. I should tell you to just talk into the microphone a little bit, uh, a little bit more. Um, <laughs> Um, okay, so that's the fun fact yeah. of the day. Uh, I, I remember reading somewhere that um, if we converted uh, those dimensions of the Cape Ground squirrel into a human being that it, you know, uh, the male would have a, a 30 centimeter long scrotum. That would be kind of uncomfortable and yeah yeah it's
1: a lot to carry around
0: i feel like we should just stop the show right now where can can we go to
3: from (laughs) here
0: here?
2: i I, I think you've effectively covered the universe yeah okay i I think speaking
0: of uh of scrotums uh greg you did a piece on uh guedemantasha coming out and saying when people are abnormal rules do not apply we're seeing uh, we're seeing this Yeah, we we're seeing this weird sentiment coming out from the ANC of the ruling party at the moment, sort of batting down the hatches, going a little bit ballistic. I mean, is there another word for what's going on in this sort of this the communication that's coming out of the ANC at the moment? I think it's in a way it's to be expected. I don't know how to sum it up in one word,
3: but but they but they they're, they're under a lot of pressure and the ANC is getting sort of put through what they often put other parties through sort of with their bullying tactics in Parliament and their, their domineering sort of behaviour. So so what's been going on is obviously, as we all know, the EFF have been have been using sort of key moments when President Zuma and Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa appear in Parliament. The EFF use those moments specifically to make protests and demonstrations and get the headlines of the newspapers. So we've seen the payback the money chant. We saw uh, last week um, Floyd Chavambu, the EFF commissar, mm-hmm. Uh, give, uh, st- stick up his middle finger to, to Deputy President Ramaphosa and, and the EFF members saying, um, you've got blood on your hands, you killed workers in Maracana. And, and as, as the media goes, you know, parliament generally is a pretty boring affair. So this sort of stuff happens and it gets the newspapers, gets the attention. And it's driving the ANC nuts. It's absolutely driving them crazy. They can't, they can't sort of put up with it, and especially because it's their own, the, the, byproducts of their, own, of their own growth and dominance and, and that actually got, helped get Zuma to power in 2009 that's doing this. It's just driving them, so, driving them so mad. And so what it looks like they're sort of finally starting to do is they're so frustrated that they're even sort of saying that for, they want two things to happen right now. First of all, they want Parliament to sort of uh, tighten up the rules or, or really enforce the rules stringently. And and uh, institute harsh penalties for those who do not meet the rules, but it's not easy to do that. We've already seen with the payback, the money chance where EFF refused to leave the National Assembly. It's only take, it's taken until now for for the sort of disciplinary
0: um, procedures to begin. And the ANC, well, sorry, and the ruling party themselves are flouting some of the rules of Parliament in not answering questions, not tending to the questions, and you know, so it, it's quite difficult to to come down hard on. Just, I mean, what they want is. Opposition. They want to come down hard on opposition in parliament. That's right. I think the ANC is sort of,
3: sort of getting around things a little bit a little bit easier than than the EFF is. The EFF has to make these big grand gestures, but but sometimes the the president, deputy president, and others in parliament are getting away with not answering questions specifically um, as to the question. And what so, some of the criticism is that that's that's because of uh, the speaker Bleka Mbete, who's the national chairperson of the ANC. People are saying that she's giving them an easy ride. But it's that—that's sort of that's sort of open for debate. But so 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 the ANC first of all wants Parliament to enforce the rules uh, better, but that's not easy to do. So now it's almost like the ANC is sort of giving up on Parliament, or or at least these little these little opportunities, and saying, okay, now how can we reach the people better? Because the EFF is getting all the headlines. And so what the ANC sort of wants to do now is just they're, they're sort of I think they've sort of thought. The parliament is a bit of a lost game, especially on these, on these big occasions, these, so these sort of, um, the times when the president and deputy president's there. So now what they actually want to do is they want to go, to the ANC want to send, send Zuma and, and other top leaders out to the community much more, which actually looks sort of like an election campaign, um, uh, strategy, but we're, we're still about, what, a bit under two years away from the next election. So what we could actually see is the ANC on the ground a lot more and, um, in, engaging with citizens a lot more than we would get normally in the normal sort of um, off-election period.
0: Brooks, does, it, does this feel like a, a knee-jerk reaction, panic reaction to what's going on at the moment? I mean, Ranjini, when wrote in her piece yesterday saying, this is officially the point where the ANC
2: loses the plot of how a democratic state should be run. Do you agree with her? Let me put it this way. Picture a very large... We're not Girl. going back to the Cape, Cape squirrel. Are no, we? no, 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 no. <laughs> very large gorilla with extremely sensitive skin and a very angry swarm of mosquitoes. The mosquitoes are not going to kill the gorilla. The mosquitoes are not in fact going to do much damage to it, but they sure irritate it like crazy. And the problem for the governing party, I've stopped calling them the ruling party. They're the governing party. The problem for them is they know that without any effort at all, they can pass any piece of legislation which enters the parliament because they have an absolute majority plus. They can manage the process of all the hearings in the portfolio committees and they can manage the time clock for debate. What they can't do anymore is manage the content of the debate that precedes any vote. So they win on every issue but lose on the texture of legitimacy of the way the issues are discussed. And, of course, the media is a willing co-conspirator in this because the media loves the controversy. It it loves the color and the discomfort. It loves the argument. I mean, it's made parliamentary television something worth watching, at least on certain days. Uh, It's much more interesting than watching reruns of old soap operas. The problem is... There's no way around it. There's no way around this unpleasant process for the the ANC other than to put up with it and come up with ways to make it increasingly uncomfortable for the economic freedom fighters or even the DA if they should rise up from their their slumber. Uh, And as long as this happens, you're going to have this unseemly spectacle over almost every single issue. I mean, you can you you, know, you can rub your hands with glee as you wait for the discussion about the newest ultra-big deal, the nuclear power deal, which, depending on who you read or listen to, weighs in at somewhere between a couple hundred billion rand and a trillion or more. Um, I mean, your great-grandchildren may be paying for some of this by the time they finish it. But there must be debate about it because it must become... budgetary issue there must be discussion about the propriety of using this bidder and since there was only one bidder they must use they must have a discussion about whether or not there are alternative energy sources it's going to get bogged down in all kinds of arcania over the science of it it's also going to get bogged down in the budgetary details but what's going to become important is the spectacle of the ANC having to defend an issue that most of the people in the party clearly had no idea was was coming their way. Greg, does do
0: you agree with the sentiment that they they've given up the ghost in making those enforcing those changes through Parliament in, in enacting those changes or getting, you know, going the route of of harsher penalties?
3: No, I, I certainly don't, because the ANC would like to see that happen, but they just know that it's a long process and it's sort of difficult to meet out and and you can 't it 's difficult to to bring those changes about at the time when these protests happen they they sort of play out later on you know it 's sort of like in the media you know when uh, someone someone publishes a headline that might be wrong front page and then then you have to go to the ombudsman and then then later on there 's going to be a little page three blur little page three one paragraph page twenty three more like it yeah. that's that's right with, with an apology there so it 's sort of the same thing in parliament the the, it, it does take a while for these things to to, to pan out and, and and for the responsibility to be um, to be sort of held and, and meted out, mm-hmm. um, and so so I'm sure the ANC still want that to happen because they need that to happen at least over a longer sort of period, but but in these sessions of of when the house is sitting, uh, all, all all that can really happen is for the National Assembly or or Blekembeta, the Speaker, to either send out um, the whoever is at fault. Um, if someone would withdraw their comments, perhaps. Um, or, or in the case in August, when we saw the EFF refuse to leave, um, during their payback the money, um, um, protest, then the, the National Assembly had to be, had to be put off together. So, the key thing is, I think they, they still want to try and, try and tighten up Parliament, the ANC I'm talking about, but at the same time, they're looking at other avenues now as well. to to, to see what they can do to to communicate with the people.
2: They can't very well ignore the Parliament entirely Mm. because there are certain processes that have to be followed to pass laws and budgets and whatever else is is on their plate, but they can, to the maximum extent possible, divert public attention away from all the mud-wrestling in Parliament to some other kind of conversation. Whether they'll be successful at it or not is a whole different kind of question.
3: And I think what, one of the things that the ANC risks though in this period is, is using the harsh language. So, so the sort of press release they sent out, I think it was Saturday or Sunday, saying that Parliament has to, sort of has a responsibility to, to protect the integrity of the institution and, and also mentioned that these opposition elements are hell-bent on embarrassing, um, the President and Deputy President. What, what that press release was interpreted as, even though I didn't say it, um, directly, was that the ANC wants parliament to direct to to try and intervene to protect the the president and deputy president from being embarrassed and and there's so, doesn't that just say a lot though I no mean, but, they, but they but they didn't say that. that that's one of the key things they didn't say that that's how we interpreted it that's that's how a lot of people interpreted it and but that if if we slot that into the language that the ANC and and um particularly the SACP as well is using um, sort of calling like EFF or opposition parties, rebel movements, and comparing Counter- counter-revolution, Counter- as well as rebel movements, comparing them to Boko Haram and, and fascists, fascists and things like that. Um, I think I think it does. The ANC is risking losing its leg- legitimacy and sort of losing face in, in some of these things because it's going over the top uh, in its reaction.
2: Well, too many people, however, will simply say, "Oh, it's all politics. All politicians are dirty. All politicians call each other names. It's all the same." It's all those people down there in the mud. Now, in a short term, tactically, that may be what the ANC wants, that this whole thing is just termed a squabble between people. Like In the long term, though, it's a bad strategic judgment because to lead a country you have to create a sense of both narrative and goals. And narrative means you explain clearly what it is you expect And goals, you articulate clearly where it is you're supposed to be going. And if you reduce everything to the question of simply poking each other in the eye all the time and gouging each other's (laughs) eyes out, then the whole nature of the political process is enormously cheapened and and turned into something that's a counterfeit of what it should be. That might be a lot more fun to watch, though. Oh, no, it's infinitely more entertaining. (laughs) That's the problem. (laughs) Um,
0: going back to Jenny's piece on Monday, Angenie Minnsami wrote an um, analysis piece on on how you know um the ANC is protecting Jacob Zuma um you know like uh, and protecting Olympus from from falling um Brooks, you've been around for a long time. You've hundreds seen, of years. Hundreds of years. You've seen changes on he's the continent. He's seen fall. Yeah, he's seen it. He was there. He was <laughs> there
2: with. <laughs> I, was, I was. there with a sign that said, "Be careful of the of the precipice." Yeah. <laughs> um, and we've seen
0: we've seen this happen so many times before on the continent, especially where the liberation movement comes into power, and then when things don't start going according to plan, they do whatever they can to hang on to power. Um, and and in a lot of cases, in most cases, with disastrous circumstances uh, and results, are you seeing some of those those same uh, nuances
2: play out here? Well, the the usual rule of thumb has always been that a liberation movement has one generation or twenty years before it begins to founder, flounder, and eventually uh, collapse in a heap. Um, and more or less, this has been. Repeated in various places, not necessarily, for example, though, in Zimbabwe, where the liberation movement uh, effectively now in the person of just a small number of people has been around since since independence without uh, any real ability to be shoved off the, the front, the problem here is in, the, in South Africa that the original people of the liberation movement are effectively almost entirely out of the picture now are either very old and retired or, in fact, they've passed away. The generation of politicians in charge of things now are people who either came in early in the new period or have come up through the ranks at a time when politics meant getting a hold of the power that was already in the hands of the party, working your way through the system. So if you look at the ranks of people in politics, putting the president aside for the moment, and and maybe the deputy president as well. Virtually all of the other figures are now of the generation that has come to be when the party was already in power. And what you now have is is a group of people who lip-sync the phrases of liberation, but they're really engaged in the process of either self-aggrandizement or aggrandizement on behalf of a faction. I mean, the, the SACP, the Communist Party, is a, is a real case in point. When was the last time you heard an SACP explanation of something? Makes sense. That, what, a, makes sense, and B, relate to the presumed founding principles of the party. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, what it is effectively now is a lobby on behalf of whoever is in charge of the, of, of the mothership um so it, you know if you look across the cabinet now it's filled with people who really have risen up through the processes of uh the party as it's already been in power and and what they're doing now is they're protecting turf they're managing a the process of, of of skewing or directing or guiding resources in particular ways um the argument before this last election was that the party had reached the point where the the Democratic left would hive off and form its own party and give the the governing party a real run for its money, a real challenge, in the event that did not happen. That doesn't mean that it's not going to by the time the next election comes around. Maybe the folks who wanted to lead that charge have learned a couple of lessons about the, the need to organize themselves more effectively and articulate the kinds of choices that have to be made to get voters to pay attention. Or maybe not in which case then the party that governs will split along the lines of factions as opposed to ideas and principles.
0: So you think the floundering uh, one generation later liberation movement model isn't going to apply in this case?
2: I'm saying the jury's still out on it yet. And
3: and, and
0: I think it's also quite interesting
3: to compare, when we look at other post-colonial societies on on the continent or or, um, sort of countries, um, many of those places are operating, operating under different conditions in, in different times as well. And so I think South Africa is, it, it, it features some of the same cases, but also some, some, different, some sort of different influences. And it is, it is quite a different period that we're operating in than, than many of those other examples that we draw from. And I think the, the South African democracy has done markedly better than a lot mm-hmm. of the other, the, the other sort of post-colonial African mm-hmm. societies. But at the same time, we are in that period now to sort of see what the ANC does. But it could sort of go either way, as Brooks was sort of saying, that we could see things split up and, and the ANC come under threat and perhaps even, perhaps even knuckle down and improve their relationship with the electorate. And, and perhaps, perhaps sort of improve their their democratic attributes and their their performance in government. Does it feel, or also, could go the other way. Does
0: it feel like it could be we're at a we're at a, a, a cross in the road here or fork in That's what the everyone road. talks about. You know, we're always at a cross. the right. It's which way are they going to go? They're going to you know pull up their socks and 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 make good on on the promises and and you know the way to the proper way to govern, or they're going to go the uh, the other way. I think as a broad
2: generalization we can say that, but but like Brooks just said, we're always at a cross on the road. There's another thing to add to it, that unlike most of the other states on the continent, this place is more economically developed and diversified. And what that means is there are infinitely larger numbers of places to gain access to resources. I mean, if, if you were in Nigeria and you were trying to, to be the top guy of the heap there's only really one place where the resources come from, and that's the oil industry. It's 95% of the country's exports, for example, export earnings. Uh, this country is very different, and the sources of wealth, the sources of power, and the sources of influence are much more diverse and, and, and more widely distributed. What that means is that different elements, different factions, different groups – if they gain access control management or direction for one of those sources of resources and wealth it's not necessarily true they now have a monopoly even if you were to control an entire mining house just for the sake of argument you might control a measurable chunk of the of the country's export earnings but you would only have modest control over a share of the gdp of the country so that the the sources for for wealth and therefore the sources to feed power are much more diverse than they are in most of these other places and that's had a that that's had both a uh, a positive and a negative effect uh positive in the sense that it doesn't allow power to be concentrated quite so quickly and quite so effectively in one place negatively in the sense that it gives all kinds of people a place to go i mean you only have to look at the most recent story Your president is traveling to the United States on an aircraft which happens to be owned and chartered to the government by a man who is the leading shareholder of a major arms uh, production company and who also happens to be a major contributor to the party. So, No conflicts of interest there. I didn't say that, you no, did, no, but no. I'm nodding my I'm nodding my head vigorously in agreement. Let's okay, put it that no way. Potential.
0: Um I want to move on and and just um touch on a on a piece that Andrew you've been working on that's quite an interesting and sort of um you know incorporates a groundbreaking uh, ruling that happened in Belgium. Tell tell us a little bit about that.
1: Uh yeah, it is a very interesting piece. Um there was a prisoner called Frank van der Blierken um, who was granted, um, the right to end his own life on the basis of mental suffering. Um, and, um, although, so Belgium is one of the, like, only three countries in the world which, um, permits where, where euthanasia is legal. Um, and although there have been some, um, cases, obviously, since it was legalized in 2002, which are based on mental suffering, um, most, most cases are still, you know, most cases are, um, terminally ill. Patients um, Who are in A lot of Physical pain So um, Van der Blierken's Case has Like stirred Up a lot Of controversy um, Because of The mental um, Illness um, Aspect And also Because he's A prisoner um, And as a Prisoner You know Belongs to A vulnerable Population um, Where You know Potentially Human rights um, Abuses could Occur Outside of The public Eye Um, So I Think Behind the controversy, firstly, is that it is true that it is much more difficult to regulate, um, euthanasia on the basis of mental illness. Um, just because, you know, psychological illnesses are, um, are much more complicated than physical illnesses. Um,
0: and they don't quite get the sort of, uh, you know, respect basically, um, to be put on a par alongside physical illness in terms of. You know, that's part of a broader general problem that mental illness has. Yeah. You know? So, well, I think it's they're also two... harder to relate to as well. I think.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So, I I think there are two things. I think you know, part of the concern is is very valid because you know it's it's hard to say, okay, well, you know, this is what the mental illness is, and every possible treatment option has been explored, and it's definitely incurable, um, and this really is the only option. Um, so people are always going to worry that perhaps there could have been something more done. Um, and especially for prisoners, because, you know, the treatment options that are afforded to them really depend on, on the prison authorities. Um, so outside of prison, you know, maybe there are more options out there and we wouldn't know.
0: So, um, this guy, Frank van Bierken, he was incarcerated for 30 years, right? That's,
1: yeah, he was, he was in a psych- psychiatric prison as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because he wasn't, uh, he wasn't held criminally responsible for his actions because he has a psychological condition, which, um, you know he's subjected to these violent sexual impulses, um, which you know he says are beyond his control, and which also cause him this very intense psychological anguish um, because he views himself as such a menace to society and he can 't help it um, but then, as you say, aside from the legitimate concern around um, making sure that um patients who are granted euthanasia for um, mental you know mental suffering making sure that, you know, basically that they meet all the criteria, you know, that the, they're not just making these requests because they're very depressed um, and, you know, that could have been treated and maybe a month later they have, you know, they change their minds or, um, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, but, yeah, as you as you said, at the same time, um, a lot of people just don't see mental illness as, as serious or as a valid, a valid justification for euthanasia.
2: But as a prisoner... If you're, especially a prisoner with, yeah. a, with a debilitating and un, incurable mental condition, yeah. presumably you do not, you no longer have full control over yourself in a legal sense. You are at the, you, you, the, the, the institution has legal authority over your circumstances in a way which is a little different than right. if you or I were to, to be seized by visions and feel the need to end it all.
1: Exactly. And I mean, he, he was afforded a number of treatment options, but, uh, actually requested to be moved to a psychiatric facility in the Netherlands. Um, and that was refused. And presumably there were a whole lot of reasons that that was refused. Foreign
2: country was one of them Hoy,
1: Right, right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, his options are definitely limited as a prisoner. And, um, you know, historically, and also the reason today that euthanasia is illegal in many countries, um, is, that these abuses can occur and especially for, you know, prisoners, and um, mentally and handicapped people, um, you know, thousands of whom were wiped out during the Nazi, in Nazi Germany under the pretext of euthanasia. Um, so I think it's valid that people are, are worried, but, um, what shouldn't happen is, is that, you know, we start to look at mental illnesses as, as not, well, not, at least not considering, you know, the potential that in certain cases it really is an incurable condition and mental suffering is, is just as bad as physical, as physical suffering. The problem is, you know, how do we quantify it and, and make sure that... The...
2: And who gets control over the final decision?
1: Well, so, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking in reference to Belgium now, but the, what they have there is you, you need three um, psychiatrists to agree um, that all possible treatment options have been explored and are futile. Um, and then the patient also has to undergo a period of um, psychiatric evaluation um, and, you know, a certain amount of time needs to pass between the request and, you know, it being granted. And obviously that's to, you know, give time in, in case, you know, something changes. Um, but obviously, it, you know, it's not going to be 100% foolproof. Um, but on the other hand, at least in a case like Van der Vandibliakins, at least, you know, these processes are are followed. And hopefully in cases where there are alternative, you know, treatment options, the patient is alerted to these. Um, and the alternative, you know, perhaps in countries where euthanasia isn't legal, the patient's gonna find a way to c- commit suicide and, you know, perhaps more patients die in those cases, um, because they, they aren't, it's not regulated in that way.
2: Is there an organ donor question in this in any way hidden in, lurking in the background? <laughs> Uh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just took a vote, the answer is no. <laughs>
3: Andrea, can you tell me, what was the reaction in Belgium, just from the public, to, to this decision? And, and are people worried that it could sort of open up the floodgates to, to many more requests along such lines?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the reaction was mixed. Um, and it's always has been controversial there, the mental suffering, um, you know, euthanasia on mental suffering, because initially when the legislation was passed, it was for terminally Ill, uh, physically terminally ill um, patients um and yeah the, basically people are saying well this could sort of be a loophole um a loophole in um legislature and bring back a kind of a death penalty you know where a whole lot of prisoners who are miserable anyway request euthanasia and it's a convenient way to sort of get rid of them obviously that i'm putting it like or very you make their i'm lives really, so, yeah or I'm, you make I'm their lives it so lives miserable obviously I subtly
2: encourage yeah. them to consider yeah. this as an option
1: yeah. yeah exactly and and maybe you know it then, then you don't have to give them all these complicated treatments and and look after them. It's it's, it's cheaper too. It's it definitely is. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper. So yeah, I mean, and that's the slippery slope argument, and it's applied to euthanasia in general. You know, like what what might the consequences be? Um, but again, I think it just comes back to you know being very very careful that regulations are followed and also that they are um, well, you know, reconsidered periodically to make sure that. Um, yeah, you know, there the, are the proper safeguards in place against something like that happening where suddenly you see, you know, lots of prisoners um, being mm. put to death.
0: I think it's interesting to see that Belgium did, I, I think they updated the law, the constitution to allow for mental suffering to be a, a justification or justifiable cause um, to apply for euthanasia. So in that respect, I think Belgium has the most um, progressive um, euthanasia law in the world, um, which, which mm. obviously... Um, have been highlighted by these cases and another mm-hmm. case where um there was a guy who underwent sex change mm. uh, and it was a botched sex change and um you know he he his life w- ended up being so he felt like a monster didn't Yeah, yeah. Felt like a monster on the back of being you know routinely raped by his brothers growing up so i think he was another case that was yeah. allowed was granted um you know euthanasia on the base of mental suffering and in in cases like that you got to go well you, you, it's hard to argue with someone who's had that kind of life, and you know, he really wants to check out now.
3: I find it quite interesting that that having those laws then allow then allow people to follow those, um, I guess, sanctioned procedures, whereas you you would imagine someone in such a circumstance, perhaps in this society or many societies around the world, would simply commit suicide. Yeah. but it's interesting that that it encourages people to go through sort of a legitimised process.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then you know, I I think also probably for the families, it's it's a terrible thing, but at least they feel like okay well you know he has he's, he's tried to get help and these psychiatrists agree and you know these these processes have been followed um yeah yeah
0: and and that's the case if you've got those those processes in place um you know maybe that person who does go and commit suicide anyway could have been rehabilitated mm-hmm. or treated in that you know had they followed the, those processes. it's only a you know mm-hmm. last resort mm-hmm. and i think you know maybe if it was legislated and made available that you know, there, there could have been people who, who, who'd been saved along, along the way. Because so I might cut humans. down on the suicide mm-hmm. numbers. You e- exactly. Um, what's interesting to note is that South Africa is kind of stuck in limbo when it comes to the euthanasia mm-hmm. laws. Um, and just doing a little bit of reading about this, it seems that our, our medical profession, uh, allow or condones the use of, um, of, of what's called, I think, passive euthanasia, which mm-hmm. is basically if someone gives an advanced directive, uh, before, before, going into a vegetative state, mm-hmm. the family is kind of allowed to pull the plug, on, so to speak, which seems to be condoned by the medical fraternity. That's a physical terminal illness. Yeah, on, on a physical terminal in illness. But euthanasia outright is, isn't is condoned by the medical fraternity. But what's interesting to note is that our law doesn't allow for that sort of pulling of the plug. Um, and if those advanced directives wouldn't hold up in a court of law in South Africa and then we kind of stuck mm-hmm. in this limbo where we don't have the legislation, which is at, at odds with the medical fraternity. And that obviously causes, can cause a whole lot of problem because it could
2: open up someone to criminal prosecution. Yeah. Well, there's a, and there, there's a slight slice over from that and that the advanced directive also speaks to heroic measures that, you know, there's a distinction between letting someone die with dignity, giving them palliative care and the appropriate medication so that they feel less and less pain, and the withholding of certain kinds of treatments that would lengthen life for at least a small period of time. And a lot of people write the advanced directive that says no heroic measures, at least in countries overseas. That has been upheld for the most part. But the next step over is a much more problematic area for a lot of people. Cool. Um, Andre, any final words on the...
3: Oh, oh, uh, I, I'd like to hear a little bit about the law. I think it was a bill. A bill brought up in, in Parliament uh, around 2000 on, on these issues, about euthanasia. The, the South African one. The South African one I'm talking about. To, to, uh, to just get our position on that and, and some, some detail on, on the legal parameters that are in limbo. Uh,
1: yeah, well, the bill was um, commissioned by Nelson Mandela, in fact. Um, and... Uh, Gosh, I can't actually remember now the name of the group who It was the Law Commission. Yeah, yeah. Um and basically I think proposed that um euthanasia both passive and active be made legal in South Africa. Um and yeah, it's basically sort of just disappeared in parliament since then. Um hasn't been discussed, hasn't been open to public discussion. Um and you know in July this the debate was kind of um you know stirred up again here. Um, when Desmond Tutu spoke out um, in favour of euthanasia, um, referring to Mediba, um, and there were a couple of other cases as well, um, which brought it to the public attention. Um, but you know, yeah, at the, at the parliamentary level, nothing really seems to have been have been done to to discuss any. So Those fighters getting
0: in the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the 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 laws had been drafted in two thousand and it's basically been sitting mm-hmm. there, sort of in. You know, legal purgatory for mm. you know just floating around, and needs a champion in parliament, mm. basically, mm. someone to push it. You know, we need a Maria Ambrosini, um, you know, um, type person to to get behind it and push it, because it's probably just going to keep coming up and start and causing more and more um, challenges both mm. for families and other, and maybe in a, you know it's going to be a case where there is going to be a, a criminal case filed against someone who ends up pulling the plug and then, you know, has to defend themselves according to an outdated set of laws. I Um,
1: I, I think the the issue here is um, regulation would be very difficult. You know, you'd want every single case to go through, you know, a a proper court procedure um, and process. um, And and maybe, you know, one of the issues is we just don't really have the resources. Um, You know, we, we... you don't want to be implementing laws like that if you can't implement proper regulations that's really the main the main worry so that it's very important that the two go together
0: okay um we've got a couple of minutes left I'd like to talk about these two new towns being planned in joburg brooks um you've done some work on this uh the stain city, uh, which I can think of a three letter word to precede it that I think <laughs> would make for a better a uh, better description of the place. Um, and the other one in Modifantine being built by
2: Chinese fans, yeah well, both of these uh, are are a, an unusual take on the idea of city planning usually when you when you think of city planning it 's sorting out the transportation, the communication, the residential areas, the densification of a, of a city zone, so that as it grows uh, it 's still a b- both a useful and a pleasant or an increasingly pleasant environment. You add mm-hmm. parks, you do this, you do that. You make transportation easier rather than harder. But what these do basically is to take large tracts of land, the one out near Danefern in the case of Stain City, and Materfontaine, which was the old AECI property on the eastern side of the city, somewhere between, uh, Ortambo, uh, Tembisa, and some other part of Coralini, and say, okay. Um, let's leave the city behind, in effect, and let's create an entirely new complex, not just a development, but, I mean, this is, you know, these are big things. They're going to have 100,000-plus-plus plus people uh, living there, uh, and the theory is that you build a self-contained unit as much as possible that has... So mixed-use commercial as well as residential. Light industry, even educational mm-hmm. facilities. Health services. The whole thing. But the problematic part is that it effectively means the people who live there and work there have abandoned mm-hmm. the larger city. They've said that is a place of death and destruction and unpleasantness mm-hmm. and messiness and chaos. And
0: basically to hell with the rest of you guys. We're mm-hmm. just going to go and create our own little self-sustaining village, town here. And- like yeah. Yeah. yeah, Not very um, inclusive. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: well, I mean, like a very large aranya but without... Is Helen Zilla behind us? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it, in the one... On the one hand, if you were to go live into a nice idyllic place where everything works and uh, the people who have to clean up silently show up and they clean up and then they go away, um, but it has a slightly totalitarian texture to it, doesn't it? And a bit of a Truman Show, <laughs> uh, Truman show vibe. I was sort of thinking of Elysium, the satellite mm. surrounding the wasted earth. Mm. And uh, you know, you could see the rest of us sort of living among the wreckage that the, the, the people who can afford. Stain City or Motorfontaine Newtown Town um, have have abandoned us for the the, pro, the more problematic aspect beyond that is that one of them at least Stain City is actually going to have a physical perimeter around it. I mean, you won't, you may not need an ID card wow. to enter, mm-hmm. but you will be scanned somehow, some way. Mm. Body cavity searched, as, okay. and presumably these are being aimed at the the wealthy. Well, they're certainly not going to be aimed at the people who can't afford to live there. And in the current circumstances of South Africa, at least, it it does occur to me that what's going to happen in both of these cases is that those people who want to work there and who can get a job there but can't afford to live there are going to, in the current Argot, are going to create informal settlements on the outskirts. Mm -hmm. And you will have recreated the have-have-not dichotomy Mm -hmm. in microcosm as opposed to the country as a whole, and that cannot be good for the larger political, economic, and social processes of the country.
0: It just seems that if you'd taken that investment and invested in into different areas of Jovic, or, or even if it was one single area, but within the city, within the city limits, um, and all that investment in infrastructure went into a place like that, that we'd be getting a much better social result out of that, as opposed to just sort of hiding away from from the the
2: current problems that the city has. If you look at the language that is in the what amounts to the promotional literature that's come out for both of these the, the key theme in them and it's not so subtle it says you won't even you may not even have to to leave. Mm-hmm. And you know that that's that's a fairly strong whack across the head that says forget about everybody else yeah. you're okay mm-hmm. here. And I, I saw a video production of the the Fontaine one and it, it it had this enormous green expanse with recreational lakes and all kinds of other things. And my first thought was, where in the world is the electrical supply, the water infrastructure, the IT connectivity? Who's going to pay for all this? But surely it,
3: government must be li- linked up with these projects.
2: I don't think the government is it's, thoroughly engaged in okay. this yet. Especially
3: Motorfontaine, because I know the government was, was, you know, sort of celebrating when, when they heard about this investment from China.
2: When they heard about it, mm. I think is the key phrase <laughs> here. After, after they got the news of it. Um, I mean, it, the Motorfontaine one, especially, was one tract of land. And the, the company that bought it, uh, Zendai, uh, which is based in Shanghai, but listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, bought the whole thing for, was the price, a billion-somethings, euros, dollars, rand, pounds, something. Uh, And it's a huge expanse, 1,600 hectares, which is not quite a small country, but moving in the general direction of one. And the government will have to be involved in all the infrastructure and all the land use discussions but they're lucky in the sense that they don't have to go through the rezoning and the planning and getting all the people who live there now say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's my house. Um, uh, the uh, Stain City, I think they bought it chunk by chunk by chunk mm-hmm. so that when they ended up with the whole thing, they ended up with nobody else left to object to anything. But I, 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 the psychological dimension of this just frightens me a little bit. Um, like everybody else, I want to live in a safe, comfortable, pleasant uh, environment where I can go to a coffee shop and drink, you know, skinny cappuccinos all day long. Um, but I also want to be able to go to museums. I also want to be able to go to a street where all kinds of people wander through and the, 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 the frisson of excitement is real rather than contrived. Um, think of these as a very large version of Melrose Arch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Agreed. where you've created in Melrose Arch it's very lovely to be there for a while but you've created sort of an imaginary it's version it's like, it's like Disney World mm-hmm. it's like a city designed as Disney World where all
1: the people are the same it's very yeah. homogenous Absolutely, yeah. sounds really depressing I but think.
3: I find the interesting <laughs> thing with something like Melrose Arch where I used to live down in Marboning downtown where, where they have it is sort of like a bubble and you have this mm-hmm. sort of controlled environment that has security guards on every single corner
1: Quite oppressive, but, really. No, but,
3: but at the same time, no one's stopping you from leaving. So you can just walk mm. across into the next block mm. or mm. Drive, drive out of your car and go somewhere else if you like. Mm. So, so, so on, the, on the one hand, there is this sort of control, very much controlled environment where you do live. But nothing's also stopping you from leaving. But I think but I think in this example there's of these... No, there's no wall yeah, around it. <laughs> <thing Yeah. out laughs> and, 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 and of these new cities, the, the new sort of thing is that the that's how they market it, that you never need to leave.
2: Mm. That's exactly mm. the language. Now, on the other hand, Australia built a new capital that way too. Mm. I mean, built Canberra out in the middle of the outback. But, uh, but there was a
3: specific reason behind that.
2: Yeah. I mean, and that's my point. And, and, and
3: it wasn't safety or anything.
2: Bra- <laughs> Brazil built a new capital yeah. for economic development. The United States built Washington as a political compromise between the North and the South to get the country feeling like it was drawn together. Mm. Um, I mean, lots of countries build new capitals, build new cities, but this is a private, yeah. a private city being built. precisely. Mm. These are with these, an intention
0: to keep a lot of people out.
2: Mm. You don't belong in our town because mm. our town's only for people who can afford it.
0: Have they broken ground in these developments?
2: Stain City is uh, the, the bulldozers are marching forward. I, um, I, some of the road work, I think, has either been sketched out or um, even surveyed, but I don't think the machinery has started yet, but it will shortly. Um, the other question, and I'll just leave it hanging because I don't have an answer, is there's an infinite number of construction contracts and other things that must end up being linked into this, and the supply chain stretches off to the horizon, too. And the moment you do this on the mega scale, in an environment where um, certain moral compromises take place in the in the political process, you open up the environment for those kinds of transactions in this process as well. You mean and corrupt transactions? I right. wasn't going to use that word either. <laughs> <laughs> the, p- the potential,
0: when there's, there's. That many number of zeros involved in any transaction, I guess the propensity is always there. But a a very interesting dynamic to this is is the question of population density in Joburg. Now, Mm. these kind of town developments don't help the the, the density. They go the other way. They go the other way. And Joburg already has one of the lowest densities for a, a city of this size. In the world, and I and, know uh, Andrew, you did some work on this um, when you were doing one of the facts of the day, um, just saying Joburg ranks really low on the list of major cities.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but um, of the the most densely populated cities, which most of them were in the Philippines, um, Joburg was something like it was like a fraction. It was like one tenth of the population density. Um,
3: so you're saying we want we want a, a densely populated city like the Philippines? Is that what you're saying?
1: Not at all, but we do want a city where you know public transport and other and other mm-hmm. facilities like that work. Um, it's it's to difficult for the, the infrastructure,
0: yeah. right? And, and
3: obviously it's not, it's not too spread out, so so thinking. that the governments can provide them sort of exactly. Yeah, it makes it very it's, difficult. It's too yeah. spread out. Yeah. It's too much of a distance to cover. You may says, not right. want to be
2: Midtown Manhattan entirely, but Midtown Manhattan works because it is, or Ma- Manhattan generally. Works well because it is sufficiently dense that all the cultural amenities and mm. and fun things that people like, there are enough people who want them mm. that support it. The transportation works because there are lots of people who you're crazy to have a car in in Manhattan, and it changes the social dyma- dynamic completely because you've got
0: that foot traffic. You've got mm. that many more people out in the streets walking the streets. Uh, which then also affects, you know, the you know, the ability for people to commit crimes, for example, uh, or the uh, incentive for people to go out and hit the streets and walk. We just don't have that in Joba. We don't have that walk the streets mentality. And one of the reasons is because the population is so spread out and the density is so low.
2: There's an enormous uh, uh, perverse incentive in this country mentally to have your own detached, or at worst, semi-detached house. One, maximum two stories, mm. a bit of garden around it, a bit of wall around the garden. Um, and whether, whether you're black or white, this is a, nat- this is a national desire. Mm. It, it, there is really no co- uh, compensating desire mm. for, I want to live in an apartment, a flat, that mm. is a lovely place. It's five, six stories up. I have lots of neighbors paying attention to this and that, the other thing, and we, we don't have to worry about the ground around it. And as a result, when you build one of these cities out on the fringe somewhere, mm. you've you've lowered the density even further. Mm. Now they're going to build apartment blocks in these places, but they're going to have an awful lot of open space as well. Mm. And because they're going to have all that open space, the density is not going to get higher. It's going to go the other way as well. Mm.
0: I see we've been given the wrap up, uh, the wrap up signed by our producers. Uh, tomorrow is Heritage Day in South Africa. Maybe quick, quick round table. Brooks, what are you doing for Heritage? Are you whipping out the star-spangled banner? You're gonna be watching Rocky. What are you up to tomorrow?
2: <laughs> I'm going to sleep late, have a modest lunch, and then we have to go out for dinner where we will celebrate Heritage Day with people whose heritage I have no idea what they think of.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Greg. Any uh, Australian heritage being planned for tomorrow festivities? I don't know.
3: I'd love to have a VB, a barbecue, and, and watch the Australian footy, but instead we're working.
2: So <laughs> that's what I'll be doing. Put another shrimp on the barbie, yeah. are we? Uh, Andrea?
1: I actually haven't considered it up until now, but maybe a picnic um, in the sun somewhere. I think that'll be... Good
0: enough. So, sounds nice. Yeah. Okay, that was the Daily Maverick Show on <laughs> Cliff Central. Um you can catch us at uh, one o'clock on Tuesdays, or you can catch the podcast, which is available on CliffCentral.com as well as the Daily Maverick website. Till this time next week, thank you for joining us.
2: The Daily Maverick
1: Show on CliffCentral.com